Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The South China Seas comprise a large international body of water south of Taiwan. There are island and maritime claims from a number of sovereign states in the region, and it's economically important as a commercial gateway for merchant shipping. While much has been said in the arena of competition between the US and China, much less ink has been spilt on comparing the approaches of regional non-claimant states. And specifically, I'm looking at Australia, India, South Korea and Japan, who all make the South China Seas their business. These states are often described as like-minded states, but how like-minded are they? Here to discuss just that is Dr. Rebecca Strating, Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at La Trobe University and the new Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Welcome to the podcast, boss. Thank you for having me, Matt. A quick orientation, an open and audible atlas for us. Where is the South China Seas and why does it matter? In your intro, you said south of Taiwan, and that's pretty accurate. We're talking about a, a pretty large body of water in the Southeast Asian and Northeast Asian region. We can uh, get a sense of where the South China Sea is by how uh, different states refer to the South China Sea. So generally, it's called South China Sea. So yes, it is south of China. Uh, Vietnam refers to it as the East Sea. Uh, there are some in the Philippines that refer to it as the West Philippine Sea. Uh, and in Indonesia, there is this sort of new term, the North Natuna Sea, indicating that it is uh, north of Indonesia's Natuna Islands. Right, so, so if you plot all those references yeah, on a map, right. you'll kind of be in the right area. Yeah, that's right. We've got <laughs> east, west, south and north from yeah. all of those descriptors, which gives us a sense of how and why narratives are important and the terms that we use are important uh, because each of these states, in the way that they describe the South China Sea, are trying to make a particular claim over how it views, how it maps this body of water. And just for trade-wise, you've got a lot of trade going out that way from China, their major shipping lanes, I suppose, but a lot of other countries coming through that area as well. Yeah, that's right. So it is, as, as you point out in the introduction, it is an important sea line of communication for trade and if you know there were blockades of, of trade in that area it's likely to to affect the Southeast Asian maritime mm. states as well as China but also it would affect the fuel security the energy security of states like Japan and mm. South Korea yep. and it could also have impacts uh, on Australia um, it's probably one of the dimensions of the political rhetoric in the Australian context is this idea that Australian trade interests might be affected by what's going on in the South China Sea does tend to be a little bit overstated, given that a lot of our trade is actually with China. Mm. Uh, but that's something that we might be able to come back to. Yeah, so th this is where you get to the definition of regional non-claimants, isn't it? People who aren't exactly in the region, you know, we don't have an ocean border with the South China Seas, but what happens in there matters to us. Same with India, same with Japan, regional non-claimants. Exactly. So the focus of the South China Sea disputes tends to be either on the great powers, so the United States and China, and how the South China Sea has become like a test case for great power rivalry or contestation. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, around maritime rules. So, you know, there is this idea that 
China's assertions in the South China Sea, for example, uh, in the way that they have tried to claim historic rights to fishing and, and oil and gas and the strategic dimensions, the ways that it has built these artificial islands with uh, military installations. These dynamics very much reflect this idea that China is trying to reorder the region or, or trying to revise the rules that underpin regional order mm. and that this is a challenge to the US-led regional order. So the South China Sea in that case is kind of a, a laboratory for how a rising power might seek to change some of the rules that it doesn't see to be in its interests. So you have this layer of competition that's very much focused on the United States and China and the United States, its key interest, it's not a claimant either in the sense that it is claiming ownership over the islands or the rocks or the reefs that are in question within the South China Sea area. But its vital interest is around military freedom of navigation. Mm. Uh, So where its warships can travel and it wants the greatest reach for that. It wants the greatest maritime expanse that it can possibly have for its warships to travel in order to defend what it sees as being its security interests. So that's the kind of one level great power competition in the South China Sea and the South China Sea is being a litmus test for the ways in which these contests might play out in other areas and how this might affect the the rules and institutions that, that underpin the order. But then you have the other set of major contests which is between China and Taiwan and and Southeast Asian states. And there's several layers to this as well. Uh, You have Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, Brunei, China, Taiwan and Malaysia. They all claim some maritime jurisdiction in the South China Sea. And much of those overlap as well? And they overlap, uh, yes, as well. These maritime claims to territorial sea, to exclusive economic zone, to continental shelf. These maritime zones Mm. give states certain rights to fishing, to oil, to gas. But there are also these other claims around the sovereignty, the uh, ownership Mm. of the islands and the rocks and the low-lying elevations in the area as well. So Philippines, Vietnam, China, Taiwan and Malaysia claim some or all of these features as belonging to them. So this has consequences also for maritime jurisdictional claims because if this is an island, states, and you own an island, you can claim a territorial sea and you might be able to claim a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. Yeah. If it's a rock, you can claim a, a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. And if it's a low-lying elevation, you can claim a 500 metre safety zone. Sure. So what these features are is another contest. Are they (laughs) islands? Are they rocks? Because that then feeds into what kind of entitlements these states have. How much water you can claim. Yeah. How much the the sorts of sovereign rights that you can claim (laughs) within this body of water. It's so interesting that certain rules matter when they give me good things. But (laughs) maybe the most uh, illustrative example of this is... uh, Spratly Islands, which I've, I've heard a lot about, there's been so much land reclamation around that island by China and so much activity on it that there is no way you can dislodge that barnacle, if that makes sense. So the thing with the artificial islands is that under international law, under the United Nations 
Convention on the Law of the Sea, or as we call it, UNCLOS, mm. because otherwise it's a bit of a mouthful. Under UNCLOS, those artificial islands should not get any entitlement. You can't build an artificial structure in the middle of the ocean and then say, right, I have a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone now where I can, you know, claim all these fishing rights. That's not how it works. So in terms of the maritime jurisdiction stuff, the artificial islands should not count for a coastal state's claim. The way that they do count is in how they change the strategic calculus uh, of states uh, in the South China Sea. Mm. So there are lots of debates and arguments at the moment about how the military installations on these artificial islands, so, you know, the aircraft runways, for example, and um, surveillance capacities mm. are shifting the naval balance of power towards China and away from other states, including the United States. This brings us back to this idea of the regional non-claimant states who might matter because Australia, Japan, South Korea and India, these are the states that I've been looking at in some of my research, they don't claim any of the islands or the rocks or the... Look, fair enough. You know, I, kind of, <laughs> I kind of think it would look really strange if we started building on a rock out there. Yeah, yeah, it would. It's That's not really where we're at at the moment. These states, they're not claiming any kind of maritime jurisdiction either. Mm. So they're not involved in the dispute in that way. So you could look at it and you could go, well, why do they care? This is really about, I mean, it's a bunch of islands and rocks mm. in the middle of this body of water. It's really among these maritime Southeast Asian states and China and Taiwan. Why should these other countries care? What kind of stake do they have in these disputes? There's a number of answers here. The first is the outlook of these states can depend on their relationship with the United States and also how they perceive regional order. So for a state like Australia, what happens in the South China Sea actually matters for the continuance and the strength of a US-led regional security order. Mm, And mm. that is what Australia really would like to see continue. It has its alliance with the United States, but it also wants to see the rules and the institutions that underpin this kind of post-Cold War era uh, in Asia to continue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It doesn't want to see the United States being challenged by a rising power that has a different outlook, a different political system and a different perception on on what perhaps some of these rules and these international institutions should look like. Mm. So the South China Sea, in my view, while it is an important economic gateway for Australia and Australia's trading interests in East Asia, the threats are overstated because a lot of it is, you know, going to and from China anyway. But the real concern for Australia is what this dispute says about the security environment and what it says about the ongoing leadership of the United States. Mm. Australia's stakes are related to these issues of leadership uh, and power, you know, balance of power dynamics, uh, but also, in my view, related to the importance of UNCLOS. Australia has, you know, a huge maritime area, around 10 million square kilometres. We are girt by sea. 
We are girt <laughs> by sea. So we, right. so we have an interest in those rules being upheld no matter where it is. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. would say so. UNCLOS has been remarkably generous mm. to Australia in terms of EEZ continental shelf claims. The 10 million square kilometre includes 2 million square kilometres off the coast of Antarctica, which is what international lawyers like to call an excessive maritime claim. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> we'll call it 8 million square kilometres of EZ mm. around the coast of Australia. It's a big responsibility, but it also provides these sorts of rights around fishing and, yeah, and yeah, oil and yeah. gas. Uh, so it is within Australia's interest to protect and defend this rules-based order. So the challenges in the South China Sea, I come back to this idea of the South China Sea as a litmus test. Mm. If a rising power that has a different idea of what the rules should be are able to get away with changing these rules or challenging these rules or undermining the order, Mm -hmm. the maritime order, then this has potential flow-on effects for these regional states that don't have a direct claim, but they are affected by what's going on. India, for example, can look at the kinds of aggressions or harassment that goes on in the South China Sea with the use of maritime militia and paramilitary forces and I look at that in the South China Sea and go, wow, I hope that doesn't happen in the Indian Ocean. Well, how like-minded are these like-minded states? If I can pull it back to that term, because, I mean, Japan, also girt by sea, India has not just these concerns and Indian Ocean concerns, but they also share a border with China and wouldn't want to annoy them too much. South Korea relies on China quite a lot for its economy. That's right. So how like-minded are these like-minded states? This is this term that comes out, Mm. like-minded, and you see it a lot in the declaratory policy of the United States. So last year, or in 2019, uh, the United States government... Sorry, um, is this US-driven, this term, is it? The term like-minded is used a lot by all of these states, particularly in a maritime security context. So I've traced some of the discourses around like-minded states, and it's quite popular. Uh, It's shorthand for describing partners. But is it aspirational? Well, in this case, I would say, yes, it is aspirational. There is one sense in which they are like-minded in that they are all concerned about the rise of China. But Mm. how that manifests in their policies and their actions uh, or their interpretation of international law around the maritime areas can be quite different. In 2019, there is this policies put out by the United States around the Indo-Pacific strategy. Mm. Uh, So there was a report and then there was an implementation report that followed. And it emphasised the important role of like-minded states in preserving a kind of alliance and partnership network in Asia. The states identified are Australia, South Korea, India and Japan. But if we look at it in terms of interpretation of maritime law, for example, these states actually... They don't all share a common conception of the articles in UNCLOS. India, for example, has a different interpretation of innocent passage, the rights of warships to transit, to expeditious passage through a territorial sea. It's quite different from the United States. The United States say warships can do it. You know, if it conforms with UNCLOS, they can do it and they don't have to ask anybody's permission Mm. or they don't have to notify anyone their warships can do it. Whereas India says, no, we want prior notification. 
South Korea does as well. And in the EEZ, India uh, seeks to put controls, security controls on, on military activities that can take place in its exclusive economic zone. And in fact, you know, one of the key mechanisms that the United States uses to push back against excessive maritime claims, its freedom of navigation operations, its FONOPs, as they are called, they have deployed these against India and South Korea and mm. Japan yeah. for what the United States views as excessive maritime claims. As I said earlier, Australia's 2 million square kilometre claim to maritime space off the coast of Antarctic is most probably a, <laughs> an excessive maritime claim. Mm. There are documents that demonstrate that other states do not agree with Australia's. And Australia's claim is a little bit ambiguous. And some people might think it doesn't really matter. We're all basically on the same page with freedom of navigation. States all talk about freedom of navigation. But what I would argue is that it actually demonstrates a different kind of vision of security and the seas and how states view their entitlements, their rights within the seas, and that these debates around, um, you know, whether or not you can exert sovereignty over the seas or whether or not you can exert a security jurisdiction over the seas, these are disputes that have been ongoing for decades, before, during and after UNCLOS was negotiated, and that they actually do matter, I think, for how far these regional states are willing to push back against challenges. Because even though we might say, well, you know, Japan and Australia in particular uh, support the US interpretation of freedom of navigation, uh, and India and South Korea, it's a little bit different, but generally support this idea of freedom of navigation, they have not conducted FONOPS themselves. You know, they will act in other ways to try to defend the maritime rules-based order in the South China Sea and beyond. But there are certain red lines that they are not willing to cross. And the reason that they are not willing to cross them is that they have their own interests, yeah. like what you said, mm. economic interests. I mean, Australia and South Korea are similar in terms of the economic importance of China. And it's not something that they're just going to give up lightly. India, for example, has a different worldview on what order in Asia should look like. It's not a US ally. It has its own strategic autonomy. Its concerns in China are very much related to what's going on in its own backyard. Yeah. And Japan as well, you know, has a, a complex relationship with, with China and, and with the United States. And a whole different ocean dispute going yeah, on the, there. <laughs> the East China Sea, for yeah. ex exactly right. So India is focused on the Indian Ocean. You've got Japan and South Korea. They have their own disputes going on in the East China Sea with China and with each other, mm. <laughs> you know, with the, with the Dokdo Takashima dispute, one of my favourite maritime disputes. I just find that one so interesting because it really is just rocks. I like uh, that you have one of my favourite maritime disputes. <laughs> that sounds really nerdy <laughs> now that I think about it. Really? Really? You reckon? <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's really interesting because I look at it from an outsider, right? Yeah, and I yeah, go, yeah. it's just rocks. Like there's not much <laughs> economic going on, but it ties up 
this is the other part of the maritime dispute. Whether it's the South China Sea or whether it's other disputes that are going on, it's tied up with, you know, issues of history, issues of nationalism, issues of, of economic interests in some cases, although not in the case of Dr. Takashima so much. So this makes resolving them really quite tricky. Uh, and it's part of the reason why the Indo-Pacific concept has kind of taken off because it reflects the maritime as a frontline theatre for potential contests. So with this sort of territorial dispute and these sort of claims going on in the water, it would be quite easy just to put it down to a, we can either go with China or we can go with the US, one side of the fence or the other. But are either of them really a good option and should we just be reducing it to that sort of thing? I know it's the easy thing to do, but I'm not sure that I'd trust a China-led decision and I'm not sure that I'd really trust a US kind of leadership on this sort of thing either. That's a really interesting and important question. I mean, I feel like in Australia, we still have this tendency to want to choose a side. Yeah. Uh, even though our politicians always say we don't need to choose a side, but that it comes down to this binary between US or China. I think that it's fuzzy. China has been quite assertive in its claims. Mm. It doesn't recognise the 2016 arbitral tribunal finding that invalidated its historic rights claim. It is, you know, seeking to get its own way in the South China Sea because it sees it as being a vital interest. Uh, the seas and the territories that are encompassed by those seas. It is acting, in my view, acting like how great powers act. And the United States also acts like great powers act in the sense that while it sees China as a revisionist state, it hasn't ratified UNCLOS. The question I would ask is how much moral leadership can a state offer when it comes to defending the rules-based order, when they themselves refuse to be subject to those rules, when that state, the United States, has exempted itself from those rules. I would like to see the United States ratify UNCLOS personally because I think that it's really important that the constitution for the oceans is maintained and I think it's particularly important for non-great powers like the regional non-claimants that I'm looking at that this is supported. Is that why like-minded is such an important kind of hopeful concept even though it might be totally realistic? Well, I think it's hopeful. And I also think the extent to which they're like-minded, in my view, is quite thin. But it'd be nice if they were. It would be, yeah, of mm. course it would be nice if all states you know, aligned their interests and had shared values and similar political systems. And if that were the case, then you know, we'd have a, a much nicer world, I think. If we look at the world through the lens of wishful thinking in seeing that, oh, we're all aligned, we're all getting along, we all have the same vision, we all believe in freedom of navigation, mm. without actually dealing with some of the differences that continue to exist, then that could be very problematic down the line. So my view on this is there continue to be differences. The important thing here is that states that do want to defend the UNCLOS-led maritime order should actually align their visions and that that some of these differences are an opportunity for cooperation if states are willing to come together and, and nut out some of these freedom of navigation interpretations. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you. And Beck's got a book coming out. It is Defending the Maritime Rules-Based Order, 
Regional Responses to the South China Sea Disputes, published by the East-West Centre. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Please like it or leave a review. It helps others find the podcast. You can follow La Trobe Asia. We are on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. And you can follow Beck Strating. She is at Beck Strating. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.